What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. You're listening to the third episode of Bag Secured, streaming on WMUC FM and available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We have an exciting show this week, including my interview with Alpesh Patel, a hedge fund manager and a recent TikTok star. We will also be responding to some comments and talking a little bit more about social media in regards to both internet finance, but also how social media plays in to our personal lives. You may notice that my voice is a little hoarse today. My band played a show last weekend, uh, Next Now Fest at UMD, and uh, my voice has been a little messed up ever since then. But we are going to get through the show. Maybe it makes my voice sound a little deeper, more brooding. Hmm? Uh, before we get into the interview, we've got to listen to a quick PSA from UMD Recwell. Let's go. Did you know that the University of Maryland is one of the 50 fittest colleges in America? Our state-of-the-art Epley Recreation Center, School of Public Health, Ritchie Coliseum, and Cold Field House have a number of resources that help keep Terps happy, active, and healthy. Join the daily group fitness workouts, request a personal trainer, or own your independence and build your own training plan. Exercise can improve muscle strength and boost your endurance and confidence. Feel better and live longer. Alrighty, with that being said, we will get right into my interview with Alpesh Patel, but remember that if you are interested in finding the show on social media, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BagSecuredPod. This, the, uh, the podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you are interested in getting to know me a little more, you can find me on social media Instagram and Twitter at tomato underscore tomato underscore or on the YouTube channel where all of the podcast episodes are available along with some extra YouTube content. It's just Luke Amato on YouTube. All right. With that being said, let's get into the interview. And welcome back to Bag Secured. For the next part of this show, we're going to be doing an interview with Alpesh Patel. He's an FCA authorized investment manager and launched his asset management company, Prefinium Partners, in 2005. Alpesh, uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, certainly. Well, back in 2005, you're absolutely right, when I launched the hedge fund, um, I found some documents earlier today from that period uh, from our auditors at the time, PricewaterhouseCoopers, our law firm. And uh, I'd actually forgotten that uh, what our original address was in the Cayman Islands. So I found that as well uh, when I was just going through some of my old papers. Uh, before that, I was writing a weekly column in the Financial Times on trading, and I had a show on Bloomberg TV on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, uh, where I would essentially talk about online trading and the best uh, the best way just to do it. And if we go back even further than that, uh, I wrote the first of 18 books on trading published by the Financial Times called The Mind of a Trader. And... Um, and if we go back a little bit earlier than that, I was working in Washington as an intern in the US Congress. That's a really interesting background. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I have seen your show on Bloomberg a couple of times and I've enjoyed what I've heard. So um, very cool. I wanted to ask about your, I guess, shift or, or somewhat, um, you know, burst onto the internet scene. I've been seeing your following growing on TikTok a little bit and other social platforms. What um, initiated that, uh, your decision to go onto TikTok and kind of build a, a more of a social media type of following? Well, you know, the funny thing is they say that uh, every new generation rediscovers you. Actually, with the internet and trading, it was 1997 when I wrote trading online so the internet and me trading 
um, is not uh, new. Uh, and um, again, Financial Times had published that back then. So that's what quarter of a millennia, a quarter of a century ago, pretty much. Uh, but more recently, why go on to TikTok and on all those other venues is because books, of course, people read less of now and uh, a lot more people are visual. And something like TikTok was the ideal venue when you want to mix both videos of what I used to do on Bloomberg TV and what's written, what I used to do um, in my newspaper columns. Uh, because it gives you that, you know, three minutes in which to explain something. And actually, on my TV show on Bloomberg, we used to have something called the Arpish Patel Minute. Uh, and what that was is I'd talk about trading and in one minute try and communicate some good practice. And that was 20-odd years ago. So imagine we were basically doing TikTok before TikTok. I wish I, 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 wish I had the brains to have, at that point, uh, 20 years ago during the initial dot-com boom have created and invented TikTok, but I didn't, sadly. Uh, so we did that on the show. And then when TikTok came along, I thought, my God, this is exactly what we were doing already anyway. And we know people loved it because, you know, we've got shortest attention spans and it forces the speaker to get to the point. Speaking of which, I'll shut up now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think that uh, you and a lot of uh, kind of, um, similar financial people on TikTok have really blown up because of, um, you know, their ability to explain things quickly. And uh, something that I wanted to ask you about and something that I've been uh, talking about in my first couple episodes of the podcast is the, the finance influencer culture and the kind of popularity of online courses and educational materials from both people who are qualified and people who might be unqualified. So I, I wanted to ask you first, um, what, what inspired you to start creating your educational materials around you know, finance, uh, trading and that type of stuff? Why are you offering it mostly for free? And um, what do you think of other people who are um, creating courses or educational materials that um, are not for free and, and maybe people who aren't as qualified yeah. to do so? Well, for me, my educational material started being published, like I said, in the Financial Times in those weekly columns. And then I put it into uh, the books, the FT books. So it, for me, it goes back to, like I said, two decades ago when I first started doing it. Uh, and it was great to have a book published. So that was my initial motivation. I want to have a book published and published by the Financial Times. Um, and Michael Bloomberg, when he wrote his autobiography, puts it really well, uh, right in the end chapter in his book called Bloomberg on Bloomberg, which I highly recommend to anybody um, interested in finance. And, um, the, and he says, well, you know, people sometimes wonder, why would a billionaire write a book? And he says, make no mistake, there is an element of ego of seeing your name on the spine cover of a book. So for me, that was actually the motivation. It was, I'm afraid it was selfish ego. I mean, yeah, I, I, I then found all these other benefits to of having written a book, which is I got invited by my government in the UK to sort of fly around the world representing the United Kingdom as an expert in my field. I got my own uh, TV show, you know, and all of these things, you know, speaking engagements around the world. Those were those were not things which occurred to me when I wrote the book would happen. And then, of course, it opened up doors to raising capital for my hedge fund, because if you've written a book, guess what? You've got credibility and status, especially when it's a Financial Times book. Um, putting that all into free material as part of my campaign. So I've launched a campaign to teach a million people how to invest. Putting all of that material into a campaign uh, to give people free access to basically what was the book material, but converted into little videos. That became a no brainer, because first of all, 20 years later, nobody's buying your book. So you might as well just give it away for free, but update it into video format because it's a lot easier for me. And also it still gives you that same sense of legacy because you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, is anybody ever going to know what I did back then? My God, I did things before people were born. So you say to yourself, well, let's convert it into videos. And then it was a small iteration to why not create a campaign to teach people, because I do a lot of work with the UK government. Um, and financial literacy is something which, of course, I'm concerned about, given that I started investing when I was at school, when I was 12 years old. 
Uh, and it's that financial literacy which allowed me to be socially mobile, upwardly mobile, uh, without which I wouldn't be. I mean, I didn't come from a wealthy family, so I wouldn't be where I am now and a lot more comfortable and all those things. So as it was something which was passionate to me, I combined what I already had, the, the research that I'd done for my books, the really hard work I'd already done, uh, and then combined it with modern technology and videos. It just seemed a no-brainer. So we launched the campaign for a million.com uh, and also gave people free access to my Telegram channel because each day, you know, I'll, I'll curate things that I, you know, articles which I think are important from Bloomberg, from Financial Times and Business Insider and, and UBS Wealth Management, whatever comes across my desk as a, as a hedge fund manager. And I'll put two or three of those on and share it with my audience. So I thought, well, let's put all this under one roof and call it campaign for a million.com. Put, you know, let people now, by the way, now they can download my book for free, my Mind of a Trader book, the very first one, and, and also Investing Unplugged. Um, from that link as well. Um, because of course, what happens, you know, you get older, you've done the books, you've done the course material, and you think to yourself, well, you know, I want people to enjoy this. And, and so I made it all available for us. Uh, uh, probably what I'd say I'm most proud of is the, the the Telegram channel, actually, funnily enough, because it's bang every day, you know, I give the bits that I'm seeing, and it feels more interactive, it feels more um, personal, because, you know, yeah. when you've written something, you put it online, it doesn't feel as personal as bang, I've sent it, you see it straight away, a bit like a WhatsApp message almost. Um, so those were the, 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 the sort of the motivations from day one up until now. Uh, uh, as you get older, you're sort of, you become a bit more campaigning. I, I guess young people are campaigning as well, but um, I wanted to do uh, the campaign on that because I've also been uh, chairman of various charities um, supporting, for instance, widows and orphans. Uh, and so it just made sense to have a campaign in finance, which is my core field uh, as well. So it was sort of a joining the dots and bringing everything together. Yeah, absolutely. Are you concerned with young people becoming uh, obsessed with more, I guess, fad um, finance trends such as uh, everyone thinking that they can create passive income through Shopify uh, stores, or uh, maybe they can become an Amazon drop shipper and then they're going to, you know, uh, become rich without doing the prior um, education or at least some sort of training. Um, do you think that those trends are here to stay and this is a legitimate course of action or are you um, looking for young people to get more involved with um, with more traditional or more a, a larger breadth of financial like education? I think it's a brilliant question. Um, there's several bits that I'm going to unravel. One is entrepreneurship generally. Uh, now, if you're looking to get into entrepreneurship or finance to try and get rich quick, what usually happens is you get poor really quick. That's the problem. And, and the reason for that is um, when I have had mentors, when I've had people who have been immensely successful and I have asked them, you know, as a young person, I used to interview them and ask them, you know, how did you get to, you know, what are the secrets of success and all the rest of it? It was always a love of the, the, the thing they were doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, it's nice having money. And, but if that's the only motivation, sooner or later, things unravel very quickly. You get bored of the, of the process of trying to build a business or learning how to invest or learning how to trade. If the end goal is just the cash, then the desire to take a shortcut will make you frustrated and give up on the long, hard journey that's often involved. So that's the first point. The second thing is I was co-founder in the UK of... Uh, the world's largest, uh, um, the UK chapter of the world's largest entrepreneur mentoring organization, which was born in Silicon Valley. And it's called TIE, the Indus Entrepreneurs. And they've got a Washington DC chapter as well, for instance, TIE. So you go to TIE.org, you'll see we mentor entrepreneurs and I co-founded the UK chapter. I think those are good places to get grounded and broaden your networks to realize what entrepreneurship really is about uh, and learn from others. So I don't have a problem with people thinking that they can be immensely successful. We want everybody to think they can be immensely successful, but we want them, more importantly than that, to have good judgment and great networks. How do you get great networks and good judgment? You surround yourself with people with good judgment and great networks. If you just think you will get great judgment and good networks from watching TikTok videos, you're probably going to have to learn things the hard way. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like working hard. So I don't like making lots of mistakes when I can avoid them. I'd rather learn from the experience of others 
who've made mistakes and avoid those. So that's why I say trying to find those mentors through organizations like Thai, trying to find those, uh, 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 trying to find the, those areas where you're passionate about, you're interested in, so that you do it as I think Warren Buffett once said, you do it even if you weren't being paid for it. And that's difficult. That doesn't happen overnight. You don't find those passions automatically. And you've got to try and match what are you interested in what are you good at and what makes money? If you can get something which lies in all three, then you'll have the desire to persist. I mean, let's take your podcast. Okay, you do it because you love it. You've got a passion for it. You've got a bigger purpose. You get great feedback from people. So you feel energized. Uh, you feel that you're being fulfilled with a greater purpose than, than say ad revenue or whatever else. But hopefully what will happen is somebody notices this. Charles Schwab notices this. E-Trade notices this. And they say, hey, you know what? This guy's got followers. He's doing good quality content. Maybe we should sponsor it. So what I'm saying is the money should then come when you're delivering quality out of a, uh, out of a desire to add value to what people are doing. That's got to be the mindset. That's got to be the judgment. That's got to be the sense which you have, which is what we want other people to have. If it's simply, hey, how can I rip off people and just make as much money as quickly as possible? Hey, go rob a bank. I mean, not that I'm advising that and see what happens. You know, so we just got to make sure that we, we, we improve people's skill set to make money. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree. And that's something that I've been trying to kind of instill in, in people around my age, I think. I think people have the wrong idea of finance nowadays. They, they think that it's all, um, you know, as I've been saying, it's, it's all GameStop or it's all Dogecoin or things like this. And so um, I completely agree. And I also happen to agree. I've always told people when I'm hiring someone or getting someone to do some work for me, I always say, I, I don't want a hard worker. I want a lazy person uh, because they will do, you know, uh, what is necessary and and no more, right? And I don't actually mean a lazy person, but someone who's efficient, right? Yeah, you want somebody um, exactly. You're absolutely right. And um, uh, it's the, and like you just said, it's those little snippets of wisdom or experience or expertise. You collate those, and all of a sudden, you saved yourself a hell of a lot of time than trying to make the mistakes yourself, and then realize, oh my god, you know what? I could have just listened to. Luke and got that information anyway, you know, and that's the point that I think we're all trying to do when we, we're trying to add value to someone. Um, and that's important. And I guess with the, the stuff that I do, it's trying to, it's giving that value and then suddenly realizing, well, I feel really great. I just got 10 messages today saying people love what I'm doing. That's fantastic. Trust me, as a hedge manager, you never get anybody ever saying they love what you do. In fact, <laughs> you're really hated. And um, before this profession, straight out of university, I trained as a lawyer. So that was another hated profession. So in one way, uh, and you might think it a bit sad, TikTok's a place where I've got, where I've got fans. I'm not used to oh, that. Yeah. I love it. I've got people who I don't know saying, hey, I love what you're doing. I don't get that in the yeah. day job. And and I'm not embarrassed to say, that's nice. That's that's a really nice feeling. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with it? You know, so yeah, again, it's a bit selfish. I mean, I'm not going to say to you, oh, I'm just being selfless. I'm just helping random strangers around the world. That's a benefit of what I'm doing. But there's another benefit. I get to feel great when I get the feedback from people. Yeah. It's It's just wonderful. Uh, when you get that, it makes your day, you know, and um, I mean, I have other things. I've got a lovely wife and child who make my day as well. But uh, as I joke with them, I've got a TikTok family as well. In case in case my family, my real family aren't happy with me, I've got this whole TikTok <laughs> family who are happy with me. That's super cool. All right. Well, Alpesh, we will uh, stop it there. Thanks for hopping on this interview with me. And yeah, hope we can connect again sometime in the future. Thank you. And thanks for all you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And I hope you get that sponsorship with Charles Schwab or E-Trade or whoever. Oh, yeah, I'm gunning for it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. That concludes my interview with Alpesh Patel, a really interesting conversation about how he got his start and what he's trying to instill into the younger generation through TikTok and through his educational materials. If you want to find him on TikTok, his account is at Great Investments. And you can see some of his content over there. He's very animated in a lot of his videos, and I think it's a fun time. It's an interesting thing when you talk about trading. 
because uh, for the large majority of people, especially people our age, I would advise advice advise uh, against frequent trading, especially day trading is usually not the greatest way for people who are less engaged in the markets to make money. Uh, and even if you are engaged in the markets, it's a whole nother beast to get into uh, obviously high frequency trading, but um, by high frequency, even meaning day or uh, three day trades. And a lot of the stuff that Alpesh talks about is uh, investing more so than trading, right? I think that trading has gotten um, in the new era a certain reputation for being associated with high frequency trading, day trading, uh, and even with technical analysis. And so I think that uh, Alpesh's content is very catered toward the traditional like meaning of, of trading, which uh, means you know just engaging with the financial markets in a meaningful way. And so there's a whole bunch of theory that we can get into on the YouTube channel. And it will come shortly. But for now, just keep engaged with anything that you see surrounding, you know, investing, trading, the stock market, uh, any other type of financial markets. And leave me some comments if you see something that is a little confusing or if I said something that someone else is trying to, um, is saying is not true definitely leave a comment and we can address all of that. So thanks again to Alpesh for coming onto the show. And now we will move into responding to some comments from uh, people throughout the week. Still not that many comments, so definitely come on and uh, leave some of those comments. So let's start by responding to a couple of these comments. From episode two, someone said, you mentioned the algorithm in the episode. Do you feel that your privacy is at stake? So all of these social media sites use algorithms to track our behavior and push content in front of us that uh, they believe will in turn garner them more ad revenue or um, I guess the, the baseline goal is to push content that we would like in front of us. I do not necessarily think that my privacy is at stake. A lot of the behavioral data that is put into our file is anonymized and there's a lot of security regulations. Uh, at least there are more security regulations now about the way companies should and can um, sort that type of data. That doesn't mean that employees at the company can't find a particular file or that someone could hack into a company's database, and then de-anonymize all of that data, which I'll actually talk about. However, I don't think that these companies are actively linking this data to our identities and then making that, putting that uh, in a vulnerable location. That being said, there is something sinister, I feel about social media companies controlling the way that we think. And it's not really their fault because we're letting them do this. All of us who use social media and uh, are not aware of the effects of social media and how it works, you know, we're falling victim to their advances and their desire to make us more intertwined and in a sense addicted to their platform. They are competing with other platforms 
just the same as any industry. And I think that social media companies are, in, are incentivized in ways that are not conducive to a good society. Like they, they're incentivized by customer experience only to a point that it helps them with ad revenue or it helps them increase the amount of time you spend on the platform. And I think there's something sinister about that, even though, I mean, as we saw in the video last week in the trailer for, um, what's the name of that documentary? Um, the social dilemma on Netflix, as we saw, these are executives that helped build these platforms. Now looking back and reflecting and seeing how it has developed and being appalled, being shocked at one, the way that these companies are, you know, controlling the way we consume content, in a sense, controlling the way that their users think. Uh, and the effects that it has on our overarching society. And even people who worked at those companies and built the products have concerns about this. I mean, you can't say that the companies are evil necessarily or trying to ruin society. Uh, maybe they are. I mean, I, I doubt it. They're just doing stuff for their company. It's up to us as the consumers to decide how much we're going to let social media control our lives and how much we're going to utilize it. So it's it's really up to us to uh, shake off the possibly negative effects of social media on our political environment, on our brains, on our, on our ideas, and on the way we think. But I don't think that necessarily my privacy is at stake. It, it does feel like a little bit intrusive for social media companies to have this much data on me. And, and that's why I think it's a good trend that companies are seeing that they actually will lose revenue if they are not respectful of user privacy and data. And I think Apple implemented the recent thing, ask app not to track data, but you can't actually disable that. So still working on those type of privacy improvements. We'll see what happens, but what I want to get into is actually um, a little bit of how, based on this comment, do you feel your privacy is at stake? I actually want to talk about how data that seems anonymous can be de-anonymized. One of the big myths of and, and kind of areas of research within computer science right now is this idea of privacy and anonymization. Data sets that claim to be anonymous can actually be de-anonymized in some cases. And one of the biggest examples of this was with the Netflix prize data set. In 2006, Netflix published 10 million movie rankings by 500,000 customers as part of a challenge for people to come up with a better recommendation system than the one the company was using. So Netflix basically took this user ratings data, anonymized it, and sent it out to the public to do something called crowdsourcing, which is where you use the wisdom of the crowd to come up with the best solution. And basically the, the person who came up with the best content matching algorithm would be given a prize. And this happened in 2006. So two researchers, computer science researchers at the University of Texas, Austin, were able to de-anonymize some of the data set by comparing the rankings and timestamps with other rankings, public ranking information on IMDb. So this data set all it had was movie rankings. There was no like personal information. The names were replaced with random numbers. And Netflix thought, thought this would protect the privacy of recommenders. But these two researchers were easily able to de-anonymize a certain portion of the data set. 
by using an analogous uh, public data set. Obviously, this is a very specific use case, but it shows how little information is actually needed to de-anonymize data. There is so much contextual data within a data set that can be used to compare with other things. Uh, even something as innocuous as uh, location or, um, you know, like not, not even address, like just city along with the context of maybe gender and like a couple other things. Data can be de-anonymized. I think this is something that is, uh, well, I know this is a hot topic of computer science research. A lot of professors at my university are looking into this type of work and figuring out how to make things anonymous. And circling back to the topic of personal finance, this applies directly to the world of cryptocurrency. One of the big draws of cryptocurrency is that you can make transa transactions anonymously. And this actually is not true. This is another myth of cryptocurrency. People think that cryptocurrency is completely anonymous. You can buy crypto uh, and you know no one will ever be able to find out who you are. And this is not true. You have to go through several steps of... Um, you know, VPN, location changing, uh, like several steps of, of safety before you can think about being anonymous. And even that's not perfect. There's a lot of different mechanisms in the crypto economy that people are trying to develop to make transactions and users more anonymous. But for example, if you're buying Bitcoin um, on the Bitcoin network, there are ways that people can de-anonymize um, your username and uh, even your location in some cases. Uh, however, um, you know, and, and obviously if you're buying cryptocurrency on a brokerage, through a brokerage, uh, such as or uh, such as Coinbase or Robinhood or or Venmo, those brokerages do um, very little to like anonymize your data, um, at least uh, publicly to the uh, to the government. Um, so, like if if you're buying cryptocurrency through a, a United States brokerage, they do have to report those things to the IRS and. There's a whole bunch of other regulation surrounding this that makes it an interesting topic to talk about. So, yeah, I think the the impact of... I don't really know what my conclusion is on this. I, I guess the desire of cryptocurrency for me is that, yeah, it, it is anonymous, it is decentralized, but it's actually not anonymous, and in some ways it's not decentralized nowadays. Uh, especially, especially certain crypto products are more centralized than others. Um, I'm not a crypto expert. I need to look more into that type of stuff to give sort of a, a, uh, an intelligent discussion about it. But yeah, it's a, it's a good question, uh, from episode two. And let's talk about one other comment. Do you believe our phones are a part of us now? And are you scared of the advancement of artificial intelligence? Yeah, our phones are a part of us now. And I don't really think that's a good thing. I participate on social media and I, you know, I put myself on the radio and on in a podcast mostly because this is the modern medium of communication and there's a lot of good things about social media. It allows people to reach a larger audience more quickly. We're able to connect with our friends, family, and colleagues more than before and keep up a lot of relationships that we might not have been able to keep up previously. However, Social media is driving an addiction to mobile phones, most prevalently in the younger generation, people our age, people 
that are even younger than us, it's worse. So this is just some data. 72% of all college students have a social media profile and 45% of college students use a social media site at least once a day. And thinking about that fact, sleepfoundation.org cites a peer-reviewed study that found a correlation between time spent on screen-based activities to trouble falling asleep and lower amounts of sleep. Those sleep issues can then be linked to increased symptoms of insomnia and depression. And this was research specifically on adolescents and teenagers. Additionally, there's another study uh, that the Mayo Clinic cites that says social media use can it, it uh, social media use was found to cause negative effects in some teens, including. harming their attention span, disrupting sleep, and worse mental health, including more anxiety and links to depression. And I think we saw that. I think this is something that we all kind of know and, and saw in things like The Social Dilemma. Impressionable teens using social media for long hours um, not only impacts them physically, but impacts them mentally in terms of their self-worth, insecurity, and a whole host of other social issues. This evidence is out there, and, and I think people are largely aware of it. They largely feel it in their soul, yet we keep using social media a lot. We keep increasing our use of social media. Um, so I know that the first few episodes of the radio show have not really been linked to finance, but remember, this show is about personal conviction and goal setting. Talking about things like this, talking about social issues, how we use social media is intrinsically linked to personal finance because it informs our values and the way we see ourselves, ourselves in society. And values come first. Remember, I said in the first episode, values inform the way that we handle our personal finances and career. And these type of issues, social media, AI, privacy, these issues inform our values. I honestly don't know what a perfect solution to this would be, but I let, let me let me give my thoughts. We should move away from unmetered social media use. For some people, social media is their job and they make a lot of money doing it. And guess what? Most of the time, those people are not even using social media. They either have a team or they have someone editing their content and pushing it out. There are people who, you know, are social media managers and they use social media a lot. I'd be interested to talk to them and say, do you use social media on your own time? Because I feel like you would get burned out. I get burned out after looking at, at social media for just 15 or so minutes. And so, but, but at the same time, it's so easy to get addicted to it. It's just a constant rush of dopamine and notifications to your brain. You could you could basically just get high on that feeling for so long, constant information. And I'm I guess I'm I'm lucky to say that I you know, I don't find myself doing that often. 
but it takes a lot of work. I wonder like at what point do people get burnt out from it? Probably varies by person, but someone who works on social media as a social media manager, do they use social media on their own time as well? But listen, people who are famous on social media, celebrities, they might have a social media manager or a team pushing out their content for them. Yeah, I, I, it's a far cry for me to think that really productive people are using social media for hours, for four hours of the day. They're not. And I think that it would better our society for all of us to sort of ditch uh, addictive social media use, check on our notifications, like our friends' posts, great. But set limits on your phone. Seriously, it, it, it keeps it in perspective. I started getting into TikTok more and... Uh, TikTok is is was a weakness of mine. There's a lot of it's so, the algorithm on TikTok is so good at pushing content that you're interested in. I felt like I was learning so much on TikTok and in a sense I was learning a lot. But you have to be cognizant of information overload. Like there's a lot of stuff that you can learn, but how much can you retain? And what other aspects of your life will will falter? So what I did was set a limit on TikTok. I stopped using it as much. And every time I go back on, it's like, I, it feels like I've missed, I missed so much that happened. But it's worth it because I've had more time to do other things and specifically with TikTok, once I lowered down my use on TikTok, I was able to make time, concerted time to learn a new language, which is what I'm trying to do currently. And, you know, learning a new language is kind of like a, a video game in a sense. It it's it has the same sort of of encouraging positive feedback of of being on social media and liking things um and there's an app i actually say this app called busu allows me to connect with people fluent speaker native speakers in the language i'm trying to learn who are in turn trying to learn english and connect me with those type of people it's almost like social media i'm connecting with other people giving corrections and helping them out with english while they help me out with the language I'm trying to learn. And it's great. It's a great substitute. Like, um, but, but yeah, like I think that's a solution for, for our society. I think our, our culture would be better off if we limited the amount of time that we are using on the kind of really fast, highly addictive social media platforms. Uh, you know, too much of anything is, is, is not, is not great. Uh, with TikTok specifically, it's crazy how time moves so fast on that platform. I'll go off TikTok for like three days and I'll come back on and a completely new trend has taken hold and the old trend was gone, you know, and, and there's, there's new comedy, new, new inside jokes being created at every single moment it's it's insane to me and i mean it's a testament to the way that humans interact but it's also a testament to maybe this slippery slope that like our young people are falling into um because all of that time being put into social media you know is it is it truly human interaction is it something that that's better off uh for for our mental health I don't know. And like the second part of the com of the question is, am I scared of the advancement of artificial intelligence? Not really. No, I'm not. There's a lot of 
guards, uh, safeguards in place against the rampant, uh, you know, advancement or takeover of of artificial intelligence. Uh, I, I like. I do really like conspiracy theories and like, you know, thinking about, oh, what if, you know, AI is being developed to, you know, that will, it'll ultimately destroy the human race and, you know, science fiction. I I liked watching a lot of the Black Mirror episodes, but AI itself kind of um, might have a bad, a bit of a bad rap. You know, artificial intelligence is not really cognizant. Artificial intelligence can be developed through neural network design and databasing. So, you know, as a system learns and adds more, you know, sample data to its database, it has a more informed, uh, an informed behavior. However, you know, this is not perfect at all. Like you have to control the type of data being put into that database or else it doesn't actually have any of these crazy advancements that we that we associate with, you know, AI that's going to take over the world or something like that. Um you know, that being said, I think AI is is interesting and I think that the advancement of things like Siri and the ability natural language processing, which is a a certain branch of computer science. I'm really intrigued by that. I think that it's intriguing, but it's not something that's really useful to me right now. And it's not really something that I, I think I would want. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I, <laughs> I said, I'm not scared of AI. But maybe my actions speak louder than my words. Like I don't think AI will get to a point uh, that it it seems like in in, uh, in in science fiction where there's robots, AI robots taking over the world, and they've advanced past our intelligence and they're controlling us. I don't think AI will get there. <laughs> At least not in the next forty years. But I think maybe part of me does push back against AI because of who controls it, okay? So let's separate those two things. The The field of artificial intelligence intrigues me greatly. But depending on who controls artificial intelligence, now I get a little scared. And especially when it comes to privacy and what I feel is a kind of going too far in terms of <laughs> how a company is profiting off of me. Uh, let's talk about Alexa. Maybe some of you um, could see that coming, you know, Siri as well. But I absolutely despise Alexa. I despise Google Home. I despise Siri. Uh, I. It feels wrong to me. It's not useful, uh, at least in the current state, for my day-to-day -day use. Literally, Every single time my parents try to use the Alexa, they have to repeat themselves at least three times. Uh, set timer. A lot of people use Alexa for a timer. Set timer to, you know, whatever. And then you have to repeat yourself three times. Guess what? In that same amount of time, I just open my phone and set a timer. Like, I, I, I don't see the real benefit to having an Alexa. Like all of the things that I can ask Alexa to do, I can do myself in about the same amount of time. And until Alexa has more contextual capabilities and like ability to understand complex language, then it's it's not useful to me. 
And that cost-benefit analysis comes with the cost of allowing Amazon to listen to everything you are saying in your house. There have been some studies and questions about whether Alexa is allowed to listen to you while you're not speaking to it directly. And it's 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 not definitive. I've I've seen some people say, "Oh, this is a myth. Alexa can't listen to you when you aren't using it." However, I really I I I am not sure about that yet. And I and because there are certain things, there's a pattern of 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 things that have happened to me that I feel are not coincidences. And you know, those coincidences, that pattern being an utter, the the internet and probably the conglomerate of internet companies have so much data on me that they will have personalized ads and recommendations at every point when I, like, and, and, I know this has happened to you and I don't know whether this is actually a result of, of direct listening or not, but I will say something in the presence of Alexa or in the presence of um, like um, my, my phone or, or something like that. And I will get an ad for that thing immediately after I open my phone or the next time I open Amazon. And after that happened a few times to me, I stopped using Alexa. I just threw it away. And so now I really, I don't have a good understanding of whether those type of coincidences stopped happening, whether it was as a result of Alexa that I was getting those type of ads or whether I would have gotten those ads anyway due to other behavior online that pointed my profile toward those type of ads. I don't know because I got rid of it. But at least it helps me sleep better at night that Alexa isn't still listening. And maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, but yeah, like I am scared about these natural language processing machines in the hands of the wrong people collecting data from us unknowingly and then using it for their profit. It's just annoying at the at, at the very least. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, let me know if what I just said was coherent. I think that this discussion with more uh, research on my end could be really interesting. I want to take some uh, calls uh, on some of the next shows, so I'd be interested to hear the opinions of of some of y'all. But yeah, this is something that I've been I've been wanting to talk about and mention for a while. Like, let's just recap. I want to recap my thoughts about artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence branch of computer science is extremely interesting and, in my opinion, can breed useful products. The use of artificial intelligence and natural language processing in the hands of the wrong people, in my opinion, is bad. That's why I stopped using Alexa, I stopped using Google Home, I stopped using everything, because of a pattern of occurrences that made me feel like they might have been listening to me without my consent and when not using it and possibly with my consent right maybe maybe i did consent when buying it in their terms and conditions to allowing them to listen to me in fact there was there have been multiple attempted lawsuits against tiktok for doing this you know does tiktok listen when you aren't using it or even when you are using it so let's look at this this reddit post so this is a bunch of people saying that they were able to see in their Android phone permissions history on TikTok 
and it shows that TikTok was using their microphone when the app was not open. Accessing the microphone when the app was not open. I don't know how credible this is. These are a bunch of anecdotes. I mean, anecdotes from a couple thousand people, it looks like, on this thread. So, we'll see whether this is actually true that TikTok is is listening to you when you aren't even using the app or when you are using the app. I would be just as concerned if they're listening to what I'm saying and then using that data attached to my profile. That's insane to me. But I, I don't actually know if that's true. I mean, it might just be based on our behavior and maybe these algorithms are so sophisticated that they can use our nonverbal behavior to connect to ads that seem like they're connected to our verbal behavior and make us concerned. Who knows? This is a article from vice.com. I mean, not a... Not a great source, but <laughs> all right. Well, all right. So this this article says TikTok's privacy policy states they collect certain information from you when you use the platform, including when you are using the app without an account. And this information includes your IP address, mobile carrier, time zone, and more. And like I said, remember that type of data can easily be used to de-anonymize you. So if if someone's connect if someone's collecting your IP address, mobile carrier and time zone, those three things together can de-anonymize you. Like full stop. Maybe even just your IP address depending on you know, what are the legal ramifications of this? Yeah. It's interesting to think about like this this article also says that th- someone requested their data file from Apple and it was just uh, a a giant database of not only like watch history but a bunch of information about what the about the the clicks and um timestamps and everything else whilst watching the video not just what you're watching. And I guess all of these are inputs into different algorithms. Like in a way that's kind of interesting though to me. I, I, it's, it's, a real, it's a conundrum because on one hand, all of these privacy issues are coming to a head. And, and by the way, that's another positive of social media is that these type of issues um, can be brought to people's attention and, and companies can't get away with this in the darkness any longer um, to positive social media. But all these privacy issues that I see as, as, you know, as definitely something to talk about are coming to a head. But at the same time, I am extremely intrigued by the idea that they can keep track of how long somebody watches a video, where their finger touches on the screen, for example, whilst watching a video, and then use that as inputs to some system, some algorithm. That is super interesting to me. That's it for this week's episode. Remember, if you are interested, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at BagSecuredPod. And you can find all episodes of the podcast along with some other YouTube content on the Luke Amato YouTube channel. Have a good week. Peace. Thank you.